Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, the podcast where we do things the Hemingway. We're talking about chapter 114, but first, I have been called out for being smug. I do um, apologize for my smugness. Um, This is, of course, in reference to my little rant yesterday about how well Australia or Victoria, my home state, how, how well we've done at stamping out coronavirus. Um, the extreme measures we took um, and the kind of frustrations of watching other places in the world kind of debate whether they should do those measures or not because it's kind of like, yes, from my point of view, it's like, yes, just just do it. Just get it done. Um, but, and, and namely, I, I've kind of focused on America. I think I'm a bit America-centric with my criticisms just because most of my news and my kind of worldview comes through reddit which tends to be quite america centric um but yeah look i should shut my stupid face about it i think and i think the person who called me out i won't say who they were because um you know it was a private message but i do apologize um i know you're going through a tough situation like you've got this virus worse than we had it and you've got all this sort of political uh, um what's the word like die 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 uh division division happening you know you've had an election to deal with you've had rallies you've had all kinds of political issues um thrown into the mix where we were able to just sort of batten down the hatches you know sit on my butt watching netflix drinking beer and you know (laughs) the, the land down under we're all pretty laid back so we were pretty happy to just lay back and do nothing for a few months so it's a different place Um, I do feel like we did do really well and we did the strictest, one of the strictest lockdowns in the world. Um, And we did well. And so I think I was smug, but I do also feel like I deserve a little bit of smugness. Like I deserve a little bit of pride in what we achieved. But I do think I should kind of keep that smugness to myself from now on because I don't want to be the guy up on my high horse telling everyone else, you know, what to do as if it was me who implemented those laws and <laughs> had figured out how to cure the virus or how to uh, not cure it, but you know what I mean, um, prevent it, prevent the spread. Um, so, yeah, sorry. Look, that's all I'll say. I'm sorry. Actually, I will say one other thing. Here's the thing, though. I think the, the reason it might also be annoying for my American listeners, um, who I have annoyed, clearly, is because you're probably listening to me kind of rant at you, which is frustrating when someone does that, especially when you're kind of already in agreement with them. Like I think the listeners of this podcast probably already have the same views on, you know, like um, try not to spread the disease and that kind of thing. So uh, like it's frustrating to hear me kind of rant that at you. So yeah, that's annoying. Um, but here's, here's, what, here's why I think this was the seed of that rant. I'll tell you what was the seed of that rant, um, where it came from. Because it was probably within a couple of days before it, and it had been just sort of sitting in my mind. But I was listening to a podcast with um, two American comedians who I really like and respect, and I've followed their career for a while. Um, and they were talking about the, the, the virus and how they want to get back to doing shows, you know, and how they should, they should be allowed to put on gigs and people should be allowed to attend and 
um, comedy is an essential thing and you know people need to be able to go out and have a good time especially in such a dark time it's 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 important um, they said things like um, if, if people who choose to attend the show are people who accept the risk so they should be allowed to take that risk if they want they said things like you know if 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 you get it you get it you know they're not scared of getting it if they get it they get it, it's probably not even that bad um, a lot of times it's asymptomatic so like they don't really they're happy to take that risk and then lastly they said something along the lines of if people aren't happy with that we can have waivers that you sign to say that you know the the, the promoters or the hosts of the comedy show aren't responsible if the people in the audience if anyone gets it and you sign that waiver if you're happy to take that risk i just with every if you itemize out those things that they said in dot points it was just like with every one of them i just lost more and more respect and i'm like how can people be so dumb like how can they still be saying things like if i get it i get it i never i've never heard an australian say that or anything like that sentiment but i have heard that a lot from over the pond it's not if you get it you get it because if you get it you spread it to other people they spread it to other people they spread it to other people so if you get it thousands upon thousands of people get it so it's not about you getting it the reason you don't want it is because you don't want to spread it not because you know you don't want to get the symptoms so that was frustrating um Oh yeah, they also said something like they sh- there should be um, mandates, like there should be curfews for old people or people at risk so that they don't catch it, but young, healthy people should be able to take the risk if they want. Um, they s- the thing about the, um, you know, going to the show is an acceptable risk, it, again, no, because it's not your life that you're risking you can risk your own life go for it but the risk isn't yours the risk is to other people if you catch it you'll spread it to other people so the risk you're taking by going to a concert isn't a risk of your own health it's other people's health so you it's not up to you to say whether that's an acceptable risk because you don't get to choose how much of other people's health you'll gamble um And what was the other thing? Oh, yeah, the thing about the waiver, which completely misses the point. That was the one that got me the most angry. Like, they can sign a waiver. So it's like, oh, so you're not really worried about the disease spreading. You're worried about, you know, being sued, essentially. Like, who's to blame? When a, when a disease is spreading, it's not really about the blame game. That's not going to solve anything or stop the spread. So it's like, yeah, well, if it gets out of hand and thousands of people get it... Um, will be um will will be covered from the blame game perspective so that's all good that's all we care about sign the waiver so we can't be blamed just so it was just so frustrating to hear because these people weren't (laughs) joking they were really saying this for real and i think all this was just stewing in my head my head of like why can't you just do what needs to be done um and then I brought that to the podcast and I ranted and I said some very frustrated things and I probably did sound quite naive and quite smug and I was probably dismissing many, many um, heroic measures 
that the American people are taking to try to do the right thing. So, um, yeah. Sorry for my smugness. Anyway, <laughs> how long's this podcast been going for? About, oh, I don't even know, five or ten minutes, and I've only ranted about COVID. I think what we should do now is just Im- implement a rule where I just won't talk about COVID anymore. That would be, that would be good. Chapter 114. Sad chapter. Acoustic Eel says, Ander, I'm happy that you got to play for a live audience. As a musician, I can imagine how exciting that must be for you. I'm amazed to hear that you have zero cases of COVID in your state. I almost can't imagine it. It's a great privilege you have to have a government that bases decisions off of numbers and theory. I hope we can get one of those soon in America. Yeah, I mean, look, the smugness that I'm feeling is if it's me who implemented those solutions you know or me that had the numbers and the theory i don't deserve to feel smug but i do deserve to feel thankful that um you know my government seems to have done the right thing uh it was cool also to play for a live audience but weird man weird vibe because everyone had to sit down (laughs) to have a ticket to go to the show you had to have a table booked because there's still some weird covid laws where like you can only be in a venue if you're seated at a table so everyone who came to the concert had to have a table uh and then there was a limited amount of tickets obviously because there had to be like you know there can't be a full room of people it can only have like one person per two square meters or whatever so it was a kind of empty restaurant is what it looked like we were playing for an empty restaurant um but we play really really heavy music right um so it was strange to just be going berserk up on stage, playing real heavy stuff and looking down and someone, because, you know, it essentially, once you've got people seated, you might as well give them a menu. And then once they've got a menu there, they're going to order something from the pub's kitchen. So um, usually people wouldn't bring food into the band room because it's sort of standing room only, you know, but because there was tables, hey, screw it. So we're playing heavy metal and people are down there enjoying a salad and a chicken schnitzel, and uh, it's just it was just a weird vibe. Also, you know what else was weird? I've been struggling to think of how to say this, but we've been in isolation for a long time. This was, for a lot of people, sort of one of the first situations of, like, socializing in a big group. Um, it was for me. Like, I got together with my family, and even that felt awkward, but then to go to a pub full of kind of punters and people you don't know in a loud and boisterous room... I think a lot of people there were feeling um, a little kind of anxious. And you'd think that everyone would be like super excited to get back out and, and go to a show. And I think they were, but the way that that kind of manifested as a vibe in the room was almost like a nervous energy. It was like a kind of like a nervousness to the room. And it was a little unsettling, the vibe of the room. It was, it was strange. Um, <clears throat> I am Norwegian said in America they just bring up freedom I think that's quoting my rant from yesterday I apologize for saying that um, but they said hell yeah brother seems like some people <laughs> some people seem to be agreeing with my rant from yesterday but I also have upset some of the American listeners so I um, yeah, like I don't want to divide us because this community is not really about any of this stuff is it and I think um, us being together is 
has been for me one of the best things about this year so the last thing i want to do is drive a wedge between this community acoustic eel says great writing i was strangely calmed by the idea that yes the mother died but she was spared the rest of a life that would have been brutal you know what i thought about a lot during that was the fact that um philip's mother died in childbirth and um how like he was a little oh wait no did she die in childbirth no because there was a scene where he came in and cuddled her while she was dying she died what how did she die or did she miscarry and die or something like that anyway his mother died when he was young in the very first chapter uh, but too young to sort of understand what was happening and I feel like for him now, like this chapter was a bit like him getting a bit of closure. Like it would have hit very close to home for him to see this young mother dying. Um, and I wonder if it for him was a bit of a closure moment um, regarding his own mother's death in similar circumstances. Although saying that, did she die in childbirth or not? I can't remember the details. Um, CW, 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 suicide, I don't know what CW means, I want to be clear that I'm not encouraging suicide, well, that's good, this chapter made me think about palliative care and assisted suicide, can there come a point where death would be a preferable to whatever happens if you continue living, oh god, oh god, what is happening to this podcast, um, Thanks for bringing that up, Acoustic Eels. I think... Oh, God, what do I even think about that? It's one of those things where once you get to that point, if someone's like, I don't know if it's better to keep living through this pain or die, it's like, there's no there's no good answer here. There's no good solution. You're either going to be dead or in pain. Um, I, don't, I, I have no idea. I don't know what to say on that. Uh, just for fun, slash sarcasm, I wanted to throw out two tangentially related fringe philosophies I've come across. Here we go. Anti-natalism asserts that one, sorry, that no one should give birth. The idea is that parents can choose to produce offspring, but the offspring themselves is not given a choice in the matter. In other words, a baby cannot give or deny consent to being born. Therefore, the only way to not violate that consent is to not produce offspring to begin with. Jeez. I think um, if you do birth an offspring who doesn't want to exist, and they are, I guess, suicidal, first of all, I don't think that that offspring is going to too harshly blame the parents. Or maybe they will. Maybe if they say, why would you have me? in poverty (laughs) why would you have me in this terrible situation that you had me in um maybe they would um but i think uh, a sincere apology on the appearance part at that point might um suffice and everyone can move on from there uh (laughs) i don't think anti-natalism is uh necessary voluntary human extinction movement asserts that the best thing for the planet and the environment would be if humans didn't exist. Adherence would have us all stop giving birth, and when we die, we die, leaving the earth for the rest of the animals to live in peace. Wow, I've never heard of that. 
There's uh, <laughs> probably some truth to it. Um, but also, humans are pretty awesome, so let's not die out voluntarily. Interesting points, though, Acoustic Eels. I am Norwegian says, I did feel really bad for the husband. Another thing that this chapter reminded me of is someone comparing the greatest of Russian literature to those of the Brits. British literature is much more focused on their characters achieving material independence. Ironically, the books are more class-focused. The Russians, on the other hand, tend to delve deep into spiritual suffering and meaning. It never really much matters if the character is poor or rich. I mean, sometimes it does, poor folk, for example, but money is rarely the main focus. I'm surprised by how much I've grown to enjoy this book, but I think the above... Excuse me. But I think the above might explain why the British classics have hit a deep, as deep, oh sorry, why the British classics have never hit as deep as the Russians do. Yeah, there there is a very distinct difference, isn't there, between British and Russian classics. I think the thing I like about the British classics is I do enjoy the British setting, you know, Uh, sort of turn of the century England is very charming and quaint, and it's just a nice place to hang out. Um, but then, yeah, the Russian classics are really good too. Um, it helped a lot for me when reading War and Peace to watch a little bit of the miniseries to understand the setting, because like one thing I realized was like I knew that they were rich and lived in mansions, but the mansions I was picturing. I needed to times them by 10. Like, <laughs> they were, they're manners, they're like castles, they're huge. Um, and so the wealth, I think the scale of the wealth in my head was way too small. And I got nearly probably halfway through the book, War and Peace, before I kind of looked into the setting and looked at what the houses might be like and realized, oh my God, okay, no, these people aren't just kind of rich. These people are like kings. And not just any kings, like impressive kings. <laughs> so, um, that. Anyway. Jeez, I'll tell you what, this podcast is all over the place today. We've talked about so many different random things. Um, <laughs> I think, Acoustic Eels, you really chose the wrong day to bring up to those two, like, real fringe philosophies that you mentioned. Um, we'd already dive, dived deep into a bunch of stuff, um... So, uh, <laughs> a bit of a roller coaster ride this, this podcast. Anyway, let's just read the next chapter and move on with our lives. Chapter 115. Philip spent the few weeks that. Rem- Have you noticed every chapter starts with something like that? Like what he did for a few. Philip did this for a few weeks or a few days later or, or something like that. Like, let me go back. Let me rewind. Uh, this is the previous chapter's beginning. The three weeks which the appointment lasted drew to an end. Okay, let's go to the previous chapter. At the beginning of the last week of August, blah, blah, blah. Previous chapter. Okay, that one doesn't do it. Let's go back again. Previous chapter again. The next day, Philip began work. I mean, that's pretty standard. Christmas that year falling on a Thursday, the shop was to close for four days. Uh, Autumn passed into winter. 
There's always kind of like the mention of a passing of a amount of time. <laughs> the one before that literally just says the winter passed. Uh, yeah, anyway, you notice that? I've noticed that. It's very kind of his formula, his formulaic approach. Um, okay, keep reading, keep reading. 115. Philip spent the few weeks that remained before the beginning of the winter session in the outpatients department and in October settled down to regular work. He had been away from the hospital for so long that he found himself very largely among new people. The men of different years had little to do with one another and his contemporaries were now mostly qualified. Some had left to take up assistance ships or posts in country hospitals and infirmaries, and some held appointments at St. Luke's. The two years during which his mind had lain fellow had refreshed him, he fancied, and he was able now to work with energy. The Athelnes the Athelnes were delighted with his change of fortune. He had kept aside a few things from the sale of his uncle's effects and gave them all presents. He gave Sally a gold chain that had belonged to his aunt. She was now grown up. She was apprenticed to a dressmaker and set out every morning at eight to work all day in a shop in Regent Street. Sally had frank blue eyes, a broad brow, and plentiful shining hair. She was buxom with broad hips and full breasts, and her father who was fond of discussing her appearance, warned her constantly that she must not grow fat. She attracted because she was healthy, animal, and feminine. She had many admirers, but they left her unmoved. She gave one the impression that she looked upon lovemaking as nonsense, and it was easy to imagine that young men found her unapproachable. Sally was old for her years. She had been used to her, to help her mother in the household work and in the care of the children, so that she had acquired a managing air, which made her mother say that Sally was a bit too fond of having things her own way. She did not speak very much, but as she grew older, she seemed to be acquiring a quiet sense of humour and sometimes uttered a remark which suggested that beneath her impassive exterior, she was quietly bubbling with amusement at her fellow creatures. Philip found that with her... He never got on the terms of affectionate intimacy upon which he was with the rest of Athelney's huge family. Now and then, her indifference slightly irritated him. There was something enigmatic in her. When Philip gave her the necklace, Athelney, in his boisterous way, insisted that she must kiss him, but Sally reddened and drew back. No, I'm not going to, she, she said. Ungrateful hussy, cried Athelney. Why not? I don't like being kissed by men, she said. Philip saw her embarrassment and, amused, turned Athelney's attention to something else. That was never a very difficult thing to do, but evidently her mother spoke of the matter later, for next time Philip came she took the opportunity when they were alone for a couple of minutes to refer to it. You didn't think it disagreeable of me last week when I wouldn't kiss you? Not a bit, he laughed. It's not because I wasn't grateful, she blushed a little as she uttered the formal phrase which she had prepared. I shall always value the necklace and it was very kind of you to give it to me. Philip found it always a little difficult to talk to her. She did all that she had to do very competently, but seemed to feel no need of conversation, yet there was nothing unsociable in her. One afternoon, one Sunday afternoon, when Athelney and his wife had gone out together, and Philip, treated as one of the family, sat reading in the parlour, Sally came in and sat by the window to sew. The girl's clothes were made at home, and Sally could not afford to spend Sundays in idleness. Philip thought she wished to talk and put down his book. "'Go on reading,' she said. "'I only thought, as you were alone, I'd come and sit with you.' "'You're the most silent person I've ever struck,' said Philip. 
We don't want another one who's talkative in this house, she said. There was no irony in her tone, she was merely stating a fact, but it suggested to Philip that she measured her father, alas, no longer the hero he was to her in childhood, and in her mind, joined together his entertaining conversation and the thriftlessness which often brought difficulties into their life. She compared his rhetoric with her mother's practical common sense, and though the liveliness of her father amused her, she was perhaps sometimes a little impatient with it. Philip looked at her as she bent over her work. She was healthy, strong, and normal. It must be odd to see her among the other girls in the shop, with their flat chests and anemic faces. Mildred suffered from anemia. After a time, it appeared that Sally had a suitor. She went out occasionally with friends she had made in the workroom and had, and had met a young man, an electrical engineer, in a very good way of business, who was a most eligible person. One day she told her mother that he had asked her to marry him. "'What did you say?' said her mother. "'Oh, I told him I wasn't over-anxious to marry anyone just yet a while.' She paused a little, She was, as was her habit between observations. He took on so that I said he might come to tea on Sunday. It was an occasion that thoroughly appealed to Athelney. He rehearsed all the afternoon how he should play the heavy father for the young man's edification till he reduced his children to helpless giggling. Just before he was due, Athelney routed out an Egyptian tarbush and insisted on putting it on. "'Go on with you, Athelney,' said his wife, who was in her best, which was a black velvet, and since she was growing stouter every year, very tight for her. "'You'll spoil the girl's chances.' She tried to pull it off, but the little man skipped nimbly out of her way. "'Unhand me, woman. Nothing will induce me to take it off. This young man must be shown at once that it is no ordinary family he is preparing to enter.' "'Let him keep it on, mother,' said Sally, in her even, indifferent fashion. "'If Mr. Donaldson doesn't take it the way it's meant, he can take himself off, and good riddance.' Philip thought it was a severe ordeal that the young man was being exposed to, since Athelney, in his brown velvet jacket, flowing black tie and red tarbouche, <coughs> was a startling spectacle for an innocent electrical engineer. When he came, he was greeted by his host with the proud courtesy of a Spanish grandee, and by Mrs. Athelney in an altogether homely and natural fashion. They sat down at the old ironing table in the high-backened monkish chairs, and Mrs. Athelney poured tea out of her luster teapot, which gave a note of England and the countryside to the festivity. She had made little cakes with her own hand, and on the table was homemade jam. It was a farmhouse tea, and to Philip very quaint and charming in that Jacobian house. Athelney, for some fantastic reason, took it into his head to discourse upon Byzantine history. He had been reading the latter volumes of Decline and Fall, and his forefinger dramatically extended. He poured into the, his, the astonished ears of the suitor scandalous stories about Theodora and Irene. He addressed himself directly to his guest with a torrent of rhodomontade, and the young man, reduced to helpless silence and shy, nodded his head at intervals to show that he took an intelli intelligent interest. Mrs. Athelney paid no attention to Thorpe's conversation, but interrupted now and then to offer the young man more tea or to press upon him cake and jam. Philip watched Sally. She sat with downcast eyes, calm, silent, and observant, and her long eyelashes cast a pretty shadow on her cheek. You could not tell whether she was amused at the scene or if she cared for the young man. She was inscrutable. But one thing was certain. The electrical engineer was good-looking, fair and clean-shaven, with pleasant regular features and an honest face. He was tall and well-made. Philip could not help thinking 
he would make an excellent maid for her, and he felt a pang of envy for the happiness which he fancied was in store for them. Presently the suitor said he thought it was about time he was getting along. Sally rose to her feet without a word and accompanied him to the door. When she came back, her father burst out. Well, Sally, we think your young man very nice. We are prepared to welcome him into our family. Let the barns be called and I will be nom... I, I will com, what? And I will compose a nuptial song. Sally set about clearing away the tea things she did not answer. Suddenly she shot a swift gla- glance at Philip. What do you think of him, Mr. Philip? She had always refused to call him Uncle Philip, as the other children did, and would not call him Philip. I think you'd make an awfully handsome pair. She looked at him quickly once more, and then, with a slight blush, went on with her business. I thought him a very nice, civil-spoken young fellow, said Mrs. Athelney, and I think he's just the sort to make any girl happy. Sally did not reply for a minute or two, and Philip looked at her curiously. It might be thought that she was meditating upon what her mother had said. And on the other hand, she might be thinking of the man in the room, in the moon. Why don't you answer when you're spoken to, Sally, remarked her mother, a little irritably. I thought he was silly. Aren't you going to have him, then? No, I'm not. I don't know how much you more you want, said Mrs. Othelny, and it was quite clear now that she was put out. He's a very decent young fellow, and he can afford to give you a thorough good home. He's got quite enough to feed here without you. We've got quite enough to, to feed here without you. If you get a chance like that, it's wicked not to take it, and I dare say you'd be able to have a girl to do the rough work. Philip had never before heard Mrs. Othelny refer so directly to the difficulties of her life. He saw how important it was that each child should be provided for. It's no good you're carrying on, mother, said Sally in her quiet way. I'm not going to marry him. I think you're a very hard-hearted, cruel, selfish girl. If you want me to earn my own living, mother, I can always go into service. Don't be so silly. You know your father would never let you do that. Philip caught Sally's eye, and he thought there was in it a glimmer of amusement. He wondered what there had been in the conversation to touch her sense of humour. She was an odd girl. All right, that's the chapter. Thank you very much for listening to that. I will see you tomorrow.